Our reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and will the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bowl will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple months ago, I saw a video um, that I'm sure many of you have seen because it was all over TV and social media for a while, uh, just a couple months ago. It's a video of an 11-year-old boy named Landon Rice. And Landon, when he was five months old, his mother began dating the man who eventually became a stepfather. Uh, she was a single mom and uh, began dating this man. They eventually went on and got married. They had, I think, three more children uh, before you know, the time when this video was taken. And they said, even though his stepdad loved him just like he did the other children, that Landon had always expressed that in some ways he just felt like he wasn't quite the same as the other kids because he didn't have the same last name as they did and because, um, because he felt like, well, he wasn't my birth dad. It's just different for me somehow. And so he'd expressed insecurity about that several times. So this is a video of on a Christmas morning Landon receiving a certificate of adoption by his stepdad and his last name being changed. So watch it just for a few seconds with me here. I'm a sucker for those kind of videos. I know they're used to manipulate us all the time, and they work on me. Um, There's something in those we want to rejoice in, isn't there? Because there's something we know that an 11-year-old boy ought to feel secure in the love of his dad. It's just the way it should be that a child ought to feel that every child ought to feel like they are equal in the eyes of their parents. It's just the way it should be. Um, Today, Zechariah writes to a a group of people that I think in some ways were also feeling insecure. Uh, And they had good reason to feel insecure. He's writing to the Jewish people who have just returned from um, exile in Babylon. So you know the story. I've heard many times where they were taken away by Babylon um, from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed, um, and they were there for, you know, a total of 70 years. Well, Persia eventually conquered Babylon, and the Persian ruler allowed them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and rebuild the city and reestablish themselves in Palestine. So Zechariah is writing to this group of people who have come back and are reestablishing themselves. But this would have been a a very different Jerusalem than they had heard stories about from their parents and their grandparents. Very different place. A place that had known a lot of destruction. A place where the first group that came back had started construction of the temple, but because of opposition inside and outside, um, it had stalled. And they had restarted it again. Where there are many enemies around them without a lot of protection against those enemies. It's a place where the city would have just looked very different than what it had been. It's a time when they just again would have felt insecure, and they would have longed uh, for the kind of place that Zechariah described in chapter 8. 
He described it this way. Men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. They longed for a place that would be so safe that even the most vulnerable amongst them would feel secure. That there would be the sound of children playing in the streets. The kind of place that would be the envy of the other nations where they would want to join them. Longed for that kind of place, but that really wasn't the place that they came home to. And to that people, God says through this prophet Zechariah to them, Rejoice greatly and shout because your king... Not another nation's king, not an outside ruler, but your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Rejoice greatly. Shout out because your king's coming. Your king is going to be a righteous king. He's a king who is righteous. He's a king who will judge righteously. He's a king who has salvation in his hand. That's who's coming. God said of this king through his prophet Isaiah, I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. Jerusalem was going to become a just place and a secure place. The kind of place where children did play in the streets. Where the old people sat around and had conversations. Um, It was going to be that kind of place. So rejoice. Shout out. Uh, The question for them, the question when that king did enter Jerusalem, the question for us is do we really want a king? Do we really? They're told to rejoice and to shout. They're told to to do that. They're commanded to do that. Because the question for us is, do we truly want a king? Now, I want a king. I want someone powerful to rule, as long as they will do it according to my plan. You know, those are the kind of kings I want. I want a king that will submit to me and conform to my plan. Would be a great king. Because I have good plans, I think, about the way the world should be ordered, especially my world and the things around me. And I'm sure in many ways they were the same way. They had a plan. And they were excited to have their own king come, a king who would set things right. Things would be as they're supposed to be again. It would be a safe place, a secure place, a right place. I want that. But how do you define right? How do you define the way things should be? What do you want your king to look like? Now, when I think about it, whenever something threatens me, whether it threatens my relationships or my material possessions in some way, uh, the way of life that I've become comfortable with, the, the freedom to be able to pursue those things I believe in and live in a way I want to live, whenever in any way those things start feeling threatened, my physical well-being or the health of people I love, any of those things. Where do I turn? Where do you turn? Where's the first place you look when those things start feeling like something's going to be taken away from you you care about deeply? Where do you put your trust that things will eventually be just and secure in the way they should be? Do you look to God? Do you look to your king? Or do you kind of start looking to your own resources? Or we say, no, I look beyond myself to those things in some way I feel I can manipulate to make the changes I want to make. Where do we look? The truth is, 
that if I was king, and there, there's a part of me that just knows this. A part of me wants things in my hand to be in control, but there's another part of me that knows if I was king, there would be a lot of shouting, but probably not a lot of rejoicing. A part of me knows everything would not go well. Many times in my life when I have control, when I can make things work the way I want them to work, in the end I find out it was disappointment, that it really wasn't what I needed or what I wanted. Control is, is it's that funny thing, isn't it? Whenever things are going wrong, I want more, but it's kind of scary to have more because I'm really not that sure what to do with it when I get it. And I have a long history of knowing it's not always worked out so well. And to tell you the truth, if I become king, you're all going to be disappointed, right? Because the way I would order the world is probably not the way you would. And if you all become king, I'm going to be disappointed because I'm not going to be at the center of the way you're going to order the world, I'm pretty sure. Do we really want to be king? Do we really want a king to be over us? And when I start turning, looking for control, I turn to the same things the world turns to. You know, I start dreaming, if I just won the lottery, just think if I could just win the lottery and I could have this, I don't even play the lottery, but man, if I could win it, if somehow someone snuck a ticket in there and I won, life would be different. It would be good, you know, because I would have those resources and I would have the power that comes with it and I could make everything right in my world. If I just had more power somehow, if the right people I could put in power, the world would be okay again, right? We turn to a lot of the same things the world turns to, and we trust in those things. So a king would be all right as long as that king would kind of conform to my way and would go my way. Well, hundreds of years after Zechariah wrote these words and Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I think there was a people there who were anxious to have a king. And they truly believed this was the king that Zechariah talked about. Matter of fact, Zechariah 9 through 14 is the most quoted portion of the Old Testament in the Gospels in these last days of Jesus. Again and again, they refer back to Zechariah in chapters 9 through 14 because they knew this is that king. It's the one we've been waiting for. It's the one who's been promised. He's finally come. This is the king who is righteous. He's going to set things right. He's going to judge justly. Justice is going to return. It's going to be the right kind of place. Things are going to be as they should be. He's the one who saves. This is going to be a secure place now. We're truly going to feel safe because our king has come. And like us, I think they were excited about it. They were celebrating. Things are going to be the way they long for things to be. And again, it was reasonable for them to expect that. Matter of fact, you look right before the passage we're looking at today, chapters 9, verses 1 through 8. Zechariah tells the story of how God is someday going to come and he is going to defeat every enemy of the people of, of Israel and Judah. Every enemy will be defeated. He even talks about Tyre. And Tyre was just known as a stronghold, as the city that, man, it was the toughest place in that day to defeat. They had stood up against the Assyrians for five years before they were defeated by them. They stood up against the Babylonians for 13 years before the Babylonians finally defeated them. He even defeats Tyre, a place that Zechariah says it's the, the silver was like dust. The gold was like the dirt in the streets. This was a place of power and a place of wealth, and God defeats even them. And then in verse 8, he says this, but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. 
Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. They had good reason to believe that this king who is riding into Jerusalem is the king who is going to set things right, the king who's going to raise them up again to be a great nation, the king who's going to destroy their enemies and make them strong again and make them a safe place again. They had good reason to believe it because that was prophesied. But I want you to do something with me. So hold your hand out in front of you and put your thumb up. So all of you do it. It makes me feel like you're all giving me a thumbs up. That's pretty cool. Uh, so do that. Now, now what I want you to do is look at your thumb. So what happens to everything behind your thumb? It all kind of gets fuzzy, right? Now here, I want you to try and look at everything with the same focus. Your thumb and everything behind it. Try and do it. That's tough to do, isn't it? Can't really do that. I first saw that illustration by a guy named Daniel Simmons. Uh, he's an experimental psychologist, used to teach at Yale, now teaches University of Illinois and runs a research lab there. Daniel Simmons is best known for a, another experiment. That experiment is the one that many of you probably heard of back in the 90s, uh, the invisible gorilla experiment. So what Simmons did in that experiment was he had this little video clip that he would ask people to watch. And when they watched it, so these people in white shirts would be roaming around, passing, passing the basketball between themselves, and the people in black shirts were doing the same. And he told the people watching, I want you to count how many times the basketball is passed with the people with white shirts. That's your only task to do that, watch and count. And so they did that. Well, while that video is going on, the guy in the gorilla suit, he walks in the middle, waves his hands, beats his chest, and then he slowly walks off. So he asked the people who watched the video, how many times was the basketball passed? Then he asked them, did you see the gorilla? Only about 50% of the people saw the gorilla, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty hard to miss. I mean, they were literally bouncing the basketball around him, and only about 50% of them saw the gorilla. And again, he concluded this because when we are experiencing something, when we're seeing something, we don't have the ability to take in everything, right? We choose to focus on certain parts. Whatever our senses are receiving in our experience, whether it's our hearing or vision, taste, smell, whatever, we take in certain parts. We choose to focus on certain parts. What it means is I could put 10 of you in a room together with something going on in front of you, and all of you, even though you're in the same experience, in some ways experience something different because you all chose to focus on different parts of what was going on because we, we can't take it all in. We just don't have the ability to do that, to take everything in equally. So we get parts. I see that a lot of times in counseling, especially when I counsel with couples where they'll be um, talking to me about an experience that happened between them. And both are upset because the other one is not seeing it the way they saw it. This is what happened. It is not. This is what happened. Well, sometimes people are lying, but most of the time, it's because we really did experience it differently. Because we focused on different parts for different reasons of what was happening. We all do that. That's, that's just human to do that. Well, I think that when Zechariah is writing to these people, these people who have lived for so many years under oppressing forces, when the people of Jerusalem see Jesus riding into the city, living now under Roman rule, 
and longing for the day that they would be removed and they would be reestablished as a great nation. Even for us, when we hear this story, I think we focus in on certain parts, certain parts that kind of serve our way of seeing, our story in some way. So I wonder if when Zechariah is telling the story or when the people of Jerusalem later are remembering these prophecies, if this is the part that they heard quite as well, heard the conquering victor who's going to come in and destroy their enemies. But did they hear this part? Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fool of a donkey. This king's way is not our way. This king is different than other kings, this king who is riding in. Remember in 1 Samuel when the people of Israel first wanted a king. They wanted a king with the physical stature of a Saul. And God wanted for them a king like David, the kind of king who would take the slingshot and a stone and destroy the giant because he depended upon his God. Not because it was about his power, because the God he served had power. And that's where he found the power to lead and the power to conquer the enemies. I think this is the kind of king that Zechariah's prophesying will one day come. He's the king who will relieve his people of the need for tools of war, things like chariots and war horses and the battle bow. His goal is to bring peace to every nation, to rule over the entire world. This is a king that if they really look closely at what he was saying, even when he was talking about defeating their enemies. When you look in chapter 9 and verse 7, he talks about defeating the, the Philistines. I mean, these enemies that had just bothered them forever. Even when he talks about defeating the Philistines, he also said this, those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. They'd be defeated, the enemies, but some would actually turn to God and some would be included. And they wouldn't even just be second-class citizens in Israel and Judah. They would actually be made leaders they would be fully included and fully embraced. I'll bet that's not the part of the story they were paying as close of attention to uh, when we had these enemies ruling over us. Even as Jesus rode into town on the back of that donkey, in fact, that very young donkey, and I mean it must have been an incredibly odd sight, this grown man riding on the back of this very young donkey uh, into town. They knew what it meant, but it still must have been an odd sight. I doubt they were looking for a humble and gentle king. I doubt they were looking for a king who would love their neighbors and their enemies as well as protect them from them. I doubt they were looking for a king who depended upon a power beyond himself for victory. And I doubt they were looking for a king who would save them from their greatest enemy, their own sin. They saw him, but in some ways they, they saw him with a chosen focus. So, what do we do with this passage? I have a few things I want to suggest because I think just like them, we, we have a tendency to, to kind of choose the pieces, as Bob prayed at the beginning. We kind of choose how we want to see, the parts we want to focus on uh, from God's Word and about who Jesus is and especially about the story of our coming King. We kind of choose the pieces. And then we get really disappointed and frustrated and sometimes feel betrayed because that king's not the king that I imagine. Because this is who he's supposed to be. Because we've kind of 
defined reality according to our own very limited vision. So what should we do? Well, I want to suggest three things that are pretty um, obvious things, but I think important things. I think every single day we ought to do these three things. I think they're helpful. Uh, again, God through Zechariah commanded us, commanded them and commanded us to rejoice greatly, to shout. I think we ought to stop daily. We ought to rejoice in our king. We ought to stop and remember we have a king who is a righteous king and a king who saves. And we have the privilege of knowing that king has come and his kingdom has been established. We also know, as theologians say that now and not yet, he has come and he will come again. And his kingdom will be everything it's meant to be brought to completion. But we are experiencing it right now. And we ought to stop and rejoice. We ought to stop and remember and look at the blessings that are ours because that is true. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What a wonderful way to start our day. God, you are here. You are king. And you are such a good and powerful and righteous king. Second, I think we ought to bow before our king. Um, Not only recognize we have a king, but we need to own the fact that, that we need to submit to him. Not only our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, but your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only you are king, but your purposes, your goals, they are primary and they are first. I am here to serve those. I submit to those. I submit to you and what you want to do in the world around me, And in my own life, I bow before you. And we submit to not just him, but we submit to his method and his timing. That's the hard part, right? You know, I want to say, yes, you're in charge as long as you will do it again, now, in this way. Bow before him. Many times when things are threatening us, boy, that's a hard thing to do. In the morning when there are things, when, when people you love or the things you love feel threatened in some way, it is a hard a place to go to say, not only, God, do I want to ask you to bring change, but, God, I want to submit to you. I want to, I want to put my life before you and trust you to be the one ultimately that my hope is in. Um, C.S. Lewis, there's a quote here I want to show you, and I put it on the slides because it's a couple of paragraphs, pretty long. I had a person here in the church ask me not long ago, said, why are you guys always quoting C.S. Lewis? You guys do it all the time. And I said, well, Uh, He says the same thing a lot of other people say and that even I kind of want to say. He just says it so much better than the rest of us. So here's one of those quotes. The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunk people and unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above. Um, every day we need to stop and remember we have 
a righteous, a good king who brings salvation. And every day we need to remember, and God, I want to face this day bowing before you and submitting to you, looking for your will and following after you. And third, I think we need to emulate our king. As we move forward into our day, I think we need to give thought to not only do we, like our king, want to be one who pursues righteousness, that sets things right, pursues things being the way they ought to be, but we want to do it in his way. He's a righteous king. He's a gentle king. He's a humble king. Now, if you ask the average person outside of the church, describe Christians to you. I'm not sure righteous, gentle, and humble are the three words that are coming to mind. Now, maybe self-righteous might come to mind, but I'm not sure righteous, gentle, and humble are the first words that everybody thinks of. We are to be people who pursue justice and wants to set things right, but we're to do it with gentleness and humility. It's the way we're to move. So not only go into your world, but go into your world the way that he does. I was reading one commentator, and he talked about the fact that that many times the, the people of God look more like Tyre in our approach to things than we look like this humble servant, Jesus Christ. We look like people who trust in the power of wealth and, and political power and those kind of things much more than we look like people who trust in the humble servant. He finished his comments by writing this, We are easily enticed to rely on many financial and technological resources to sustain our ministries and lifestyle. The difficulty is that we become deluded into believing that such resources are signs of God's blessing, even as our hearts are blinded to how much such resources have displaced God as the object of faith. It is not wrong we use those resources. I don't think. As a church, collectively, we want to use the resources we have the best way we can. So I was even thinking that this morning. We We want to have an influence as a church upon one another and upon this community. I want to do that. And man, it is tempting to depend upon the same resources that our world does. Depend upon our ability to somehow protect our place in society, to have the right resources and the money to buy the right things and to have the right people in place. But I was thinking this morning as I was walking down there and I walked by a room down the hallway where a group of people every Sunday morning pulls aside and prays for our services. Every single Sunday morning they pull away into that room and they pray before these services even begin for all of us. And I thought, that's where our real hope is. Our real hope is that we have a king, and he's the one who's going to bring change. He's the one who's going to set things right, make things secure. They'll be as they should be. He looks different than what a lot of us expect him to look like. But he is the king, and he truly is our only hope. And our job is to be the people of the king. Let's pray. And Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that we know the incredible blessing of being citizens of your kingdom. Father, I thank you for the the joy that we know because of that. And I pray you'd remind us often of the many blessings we have because of your grace. Father, I pray you'd just help us to, even though our vision is limited, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who follow well. In your name, amen.